word for today is in the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You may be seated. Let's open up our time in, in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather as, as your people and to worship you, to behold you. Lord, to encourage and build up one another, to extend the love and the grace you've extended to us, to extend that to, to one another and to others and to family and friends today. And Lord, as we approach your word, we do not do so uh, lightly, but Lord, Help us come expectantly to it, knowing that you are going to move and work as your truth is proclaimed. So Lord, we ask for your help today as we continue our time of worship and preaching your word and in hearing your word and in receiving your word. We ask uh, for the spirit to, to guide and lead, to convict and encourage and for this word to take deep root in our heart that it might bear fruit in our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. So there are certain days of the year that we all pretty much know uh, because they are special days. They're either holidays or they are days that we have certain responsibilities on those days, right? Uh, so, for example, everyone knows that December 25th is... Christmas, right? Yeah, we all like Christmas, right? Some of us don't, like Kevin and other people, like they're kind of Scrooges, right? Don't like Christmas. But December 25th is uh, Christmas, right? Okay, what about the fourth Thursday in November? What is that? Thanksgiving, right? Okay, what about October 31st? It is... Reformation Day, that's right, where we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, we get dressed up, we pass out candy, that was sort of a trick one, okay? Uh, how about, this is an easy one, July 4th, July 4th is Independence Day. Now, if you're married, uh, you should probably have on your calendar and uh, a phone reminder, like your anniversary, right? That's a big day in the year that you should have some responsibilities on that day to at least acknowledge the anniversary, a nice card, dinner, flowers, things like that. Uh, but what about April 15th? What is April 15th? Tax day. It is tax day. On April 15th, you have a responsibility to the government to surrender your taxes on that day. 
You experience the benefits of the government, right? Protecting you, making roads for you to drive on, and therefore, uh, by April 15th, you have a responsibility to surrender taxes to the government. Now, this is a responsibility that people are not too fond of. Uh, we could tell even just by some of the boos and the, uh, the grumblings that started to break out here this morning. Uh, we do not like this. We try to find a way to get around it in whatever way we can. And it was in 1987 that an IRS research officer discovered the shocking extent of the public's willingness to deceive the government in order to get out of paying taxes and surrendering what they owed to the government. And what this IRS officer was noticing through these random audits was that people were incorrectly claiming dependents. They were doing this for the sake of exemptions. And so uh, sometimes these were genuine mistakes, but uh, many times they were fraudulent. People were putting uh, pets' names as their dependents. People were listing imaginary children as their dependents. And the officer recalls going through a random audit and seeing that one of the dependents names was named Fluffy, Fluffy, which was obviously a pet and not a child, at least we hope. We hope that was a pet. But people were putting pets as dependents, they were putting imaginary ch children as dependents, and the officer decided that the most efficient way to clean up this mess uh, was to make people uh, require taxpayers to list their children's social security number if they're going to list them as dependents. So unless Fluffy has a social security number, they weren't going to be able to make it on the list of dependents any longer. And so in 1986, this was put into the tax law. And when returns st started coming in, they were shocked to find that 7 million dependents had suddenly disappeared. Nowhere to be found. 7 million and this change generated $3 billion in revenue in one year alone. Now, hopefully that IRS officer at least got a Christmas bonus that year for generating $3 billion, right? Uh, but you see, we love the benefits that we can get from the government, but we often try to get out of our responsibility to the government. And sadly, we often do this with God as well. We love the benefits and the blessings that we can get from God, but we try to get out of the responsibility of surrendering to God what is God's. We are a people who wants the benefits with none of the responsibility. We want the blessings with none of the taxes. And Jesus is going to rock our worlds this morning with one earth-shattering sentence. One sentence will shape how we view our responsibility to the institutions that God has put into our life, like the government and the local church and the family. And ultimately, this one phrase will shape our, how we view our responsibility to God as well. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 12. As always, you can always grab one of the Bibles in the back as you come in. We'll have some of the scriptures up on the screen, but I'd encourage you to have a Bible in front of you. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 12. And we'll be starting in verse 13. Let me set the scene a little bit for you guys this morning. Jesus has just told the parable about the wicked, rebellious uh, uh, tenants of the vineyard. 
okay, in which the religious leaders perceived he was speaking against them. Jesus was teaching that the religious leaders of the Jewish nation, they had killed the prophets God had sent to them. They would ultimately kill God's son, right, Jesus, and therefore he was going to replace them with other caretakers of his people, which would eventually be the apostles and then the local church and elders and pastors. They would now be the ones to take care of God's vineyard, God's people, and the leaders hear this, uh, they, they know he's talking about them, and so that they're now going to step up the pressure and the resistance against him, and they're going to send uh, different groups at him to try to challenge him and oppose him. And so this week, we're going to see the Pharisees and the Herodians get sent at Jesus. Next week, we're going to see the Sadducees get sent to Jesus. And the week after that, we're going to see the scribes come at Jesus. So look with me now at Mark chapter 12, as the religious leaders are starting to step up the pressure against Jesus. Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay, let me introduce the characters to you a little bit this morning. We've seen this unlikely combo of Pharisees and Herodians back in Mark chapter 3. But the Pharisees, they were members of a Jewish party that held very strictly to the Mosaic law. They thought of themselves as very, you know, externally religious. And in fact, they were so psyched about the Mosaic law, they even added a bunch of their own laws and rules on top of it, just so they would make sure they didn't get close to breaking the Mosaic law. And so picture the Pharisees kind of on this side of the aisle, right? They were like, they're just super externally religious. And they ultimately, they hated Jesus because he was going to mess with their religious system and their religious laws. Now the Herodians, picture them kind of on the opposite side of the, the aisle, right? They were called the Herodians because they supported the ruling authority of the Herods. And the Herods were not pure Jews, but they were like puppet kings under the authority of Rome. And so they were despised by many Jews because they supported Rome. They supported big government. And so think of the Herodians kind of on the opposite side of the aisle as the Pharisees. And, and while the Pharisees hated Jesus because he could mess with their religious position. The Herodians hated Jesus because he could mess with their political position. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, they typically hated one another, uh, but their common hatred of Jesus has brought them together in an unlikely pair which often is a unifying thing. People that can't see eye to eye on anything can sometimes come together in their hatred of Christ or in their mockery of Christians. And so here are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Typically, they wouldn't even be seen together, uh, but they are sent to Jesus to challenge him. And they're sent by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling authority of the Jews in Jerusalem, and their intent is to trap Jesus. Like, they had no interest in really trying to learn from Jesus. They weren't asking genuine questions of him. We know it's written here that they went to trap him, to try to accuse him of something. Look back at verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They start with four compliments in a row to Jesus. All right? The first one, teacher, we know that you are true. The second one, you do not care about anyone's opinion. 
Number three, for you are not swayed by appearances. And number four, but you truly teach the way of God. Now, this is just a side note, okay? This is for your information. But when someone gives you four compliments in a row, they are not really complimenting you, okay? They are just buttering you up, right? This is flattery at its finest. They, they, these things are all true of Jesus, but they don't really believe them. They're just trying to flatter him. They're just trying to kind of butter him up for something that's to come. For example, okay, so if, if someone comes to you and gives you one compliment, that's like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool, right? You, you kinda, it kind of picks you up a little bit. It gives you some encouragement for the day. You're like, man, someone just gave me a compliment. Like, I'm going to go enjoy my day, right? Someone gives you a second compliment. You're like, wow, man, that's awesome. Like, they're going full on K-love on me, right? They're positive and encouraging, right? Like, I'm going to feel great moving forward in my day. Someone gives you a third compliment. You start to get a little like, okay, this is weird. Someone gives you a fourth compliment. Buckle up, right? Something not good is about to happen. They're going to ask you for money. They're going to ask you to help them move. Something is coming, all right? But four compliments in a row. Get ready. Uh, Something is coming your way that is not good, okay? And so they've flattered him some. And now here's the question in verse 14. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, to understand this question, we have to go to history class for a second, okay? And the the first century Jewish historian Josephus is going to help us out a little bit, all right? Back in the year A.D. 6, okay, back when years were in the single digits, okay, about the time that Jesus was born uh, in Bethlehem, there was a guy named Judas, now, not, not that Judas, all right, not the Judas you're thinking of, but this guy was named Judas, and they were, he was called Judas of Galilee. And you see, when Judea became a Roman province, uh, they were first given a poll tax in this year, and Judas of Galilee led a revolt against that tax. Now, he was from Galilee, and he went and he first cleansed the temple of Gentiles, right? He kicked out all the foreigners, which you remember when Jesus cleansed the temple. Jesus did not cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Jesus cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. He cleared out the court of the Gentiles so that it could once again be a place of prayer for the nations. So a little difference there, but Judas of Galilee, he cleansed the temple, and then he led a revolt and said, we should not be paying taxes. Uh, to Rome. And Josephus describes his call to revolt in these terms. He writes, he called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and for putting up with mortal masters in place of God. The theology underlying such language is that allegiance to God and to Rome as a pagan occupying power are fundamentally incompatible. So he said, hey, Judas of Galilee was led a revolt. Rome quickly came in and stamped this out. And so this would still be in people's memories, right? This would be recent history for them. Uh, here is not Judas of Galilee, but Jesus. And where, he, where is he from? He's from Galilee. He's come and he's cleansed the temple. And now is he going to lead a revolt? Is, what is he going to say about paying taxes to Rome? So here's, here's the trap that they set for him. 
If Jesus said on one hand, it is okay to pay taxes to Caesar, uh, the people would turn against him, right? The people, because people hated paying taxes, just like you, they would grumble and they would boo and things like that, right? And so if he said it was okay to pay taxes, the people would turn on him. If he said that no one should pay taxes to Caesar, uh, then they would go tell the Romans and the Romans would arrest him and deal with him. And so they've set a trap. And to us, this seems like a lose-lose situation, right? Like whichever way he answers, they could find a way to accuse him and twist, him, twist the words and, and get him in trouble for something. And I'm sure the Pharisees and the Herodians, they think they're pretty clever by setting this trap and asking him such a question, but he's about to blow their minds because God loves to turn lose-lose situations into win-win-win-win situations, okay? That's one for the Father, Son, Spirit, and for us. That's four wins, all right? But God loves to turn lose-lose situations into that, all right? Look back at Mark 12, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus sees through their flattery, and he knows that four compliments were a setup for something else, and he knows that these Pharisees and Herodians do not really believe what they've just said about him, and so he tells them to bring a denarius. Now, we have a, a picture of a denarius up here on uh, the screens, okay? A denarius was a small silver coin, uh, and it carried the value of an average day's wage for a laborer in Israel. So if you worked hard for one day, uh, you got a denarius. And this is what was owed to pay the poll tax, uh, which is the tax in question. One denarius a year was owed to Caesar. But again, not only was the tax offensive to the Jews, like, uh, like Judas of Galilee and those who revolted against Rome, right? Uh, but the actual denarius that they had to pay it with was offensive. Because on the denarius was a picture of Tiberius Caesar with an abbreviated Latin inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Caesar Augustus had considered himself divine, and all the Caesars to follow had considered themselves divine, right? Like their self-esteem was through the roof, right? It was way high. They had great self-esteem. They considered themselves to be divine. And so not only was the coin politically offensive because it reminded the people that Rome ruled them, but it was also religiously offensive by calling Caesar a god. And so most, most Jewish people did not usually carry these around because they considered it to be idolatry. So most of them carried copper coins around that were locally minted, uh, and then they would, you know, round up a denarius when it was time to pay the poll tax. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't have a denarius, right? But his questioners do. Like, they considered it to be idolatrous, but when Jesus asked them, give me a denarius, they're like, oh yeah, I got one right here, right? Like, they just pull it out. Look, look back at verse 16. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Right? Like, like whose image is this? And you can, you can just leave that up for a little while, Alyssa, until we go to our next text. But, like, whose image is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. 
And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He said, Whoever's image this is, surrender it to them. Like, whose, whose image is it? He said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. Like, wow. Here was a situation, what we thought was a lose-lose situation. How is Jesus going to get out of this, right? And then, bam, he does so in his, all, you know, in his wisdom and in his knowledge, and he just does so gracefully. He, he gives them this answer, and they marvel at him. There are so many times in our life where we look at our situation, we see it as a lose-lose situation. We don't see a way out of the situation, and yet Jesus steps in and does something we can't even imagine, and we marvel at him. And that'll be something we can hopefully talk about with one another at city groups this week, ways that Jesus stepped into a situation that we didn't see a way out of, and he comes up with something that we, all we can do is just marvel at. We can just worship him for it, right? Jesus does not get tripped up in their trap, but in one sentence he puts Caesar in his place, and he puts God in his the lie that many people believed was that allegiance to God and allegiance to Rome was incompatible, that it had to be one or the other, either God or government. But no, Jesus says, look at this coin, right? Like whose image is stamped on it? Then surrender to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Paul, when writing to the Romans in chapter 13, Verse 1, he gives us further instruction in how we are to understand those who rule over us as well. He writes in Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Skipping down to verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. If you were hoping that this message was going to give you some sort of Jesus juke around, play, about, around paying your taxes, right? Spoiler alert, that's not going to happen, right? You're going to be disappointed by this sermon. In fact, Jesus and Paul are saying the opposite. They're saying that allegiance to God and to government are not incompatible, but actually compatible because God has appointed these authorities and whoever resists these authorities also resists God. And Jesus, with this answer, he has distanced himself from the zealots and, and, and Judas of Galilee who, who believed that overthrowing the Romans was the will of God. No, Jesus says, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. If you are a Christian and you have been deceiving the government or being deceitful in any way with your finances, you need to repent to confess your sin and pay your taxes. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but, uh, yeah, but, I mean, I get it, I get it, but what if the government uh, leaders are immoral, 
right? Like, what if this, this is the bad government over uh, in control? Like, what if the leaders are immoral that are ruling over us? Which I'm sure none of us can even imagine a situation that would be like that. Uh, but like, what if we don't really trust the leaders, right? What if they misuse uh, our money? What if they lie and steal and cheat from the uh, cheat the people? Like, like, what if we struggle to respect uh, the character of our leaders or the policies of our leaders? Like, what about then, like, shouldn't we, uh, shouldn't we uh, kind of deceive to keep the money and use it for other things? But le- let me put Romans 13 in perspective a little bit for you, okay? Paul, when he wrote Romans 13, was writing to people whose emperor was Nero. Now listen, I realize what our political leaders are like, but Nero murdered his wife, his mom, his stepbrother. Many historians believe he set the whole city of Rome on fire and blamed the Christians for it, who were then tortured and killed. Nero would light Christians on fire to light his evening garden parties. Like, not a high-character guy, right? probably would disagree with him on some of his policies. And Paul says to the Romans, pay your taxes. Peter later goes on to say a similar thing. In 1 Peter 2, verse 13, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. And so here's where we are currently in our current uh, political climate. We don't like to get political here, okay? Uh, uh, there, there are, uh, but, but we do need to speak truth into it at times, all right? Here's where we are currently. We have people on one hand that absolutely hate, uh, criticize, and rebel against our current leaders of our government and followers of Jesus who have fallen into this because that's the popular thing to do. We need to repent of that. We need to confess our sin. And while we might not ever be able to uh, uh, honor or respect the person, we do need to at least honor and respect the office, understanding that anyone in the office has been given the authority ultimately by God. But then there are other people who have almost like set their hopes and their dreams on our government leaders, like they are some type of savior to us. And and those people need to repent and confess their sin because, yes, while we're called to honor and pray for our government leaders, our hope is never set on our government leaders. Our hope is set on God. Our hope is in Proverbs 21, 1, that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Surrender to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now listen, I realize there are at times exceptions to this, so we have to give a little bit of, of a caveat here. Yes, we seek to honor and obey our government as long as we can, but there are times when Christians are free to engage in civil disobedience, when either the government keeps you from doing what God commands, or when the government tells you to do something that God prohibits. 
Okay, we do see at times Christians are free to engage in civil disobedience when either the government keeps you from doing what God has commanded or they tell you to do something that God has prohibited because ultimately we have to obey God and not man. We have to respond like Peter and the apostles did in Acts 5:29 when they said we must obey God rather than men. And so the government in general, okay, in general, I realize there's, uh, uh, you know, some exceptions here, but in general, it is an institution that is one of the common graces that God gives to human beings. And other institutions that God has given to human beings as a common grace to us, one, another one would be the local church, and another one would be the family unit. And with, with each of those institutions, there are blessings that God provides to us through them, as well as there are also responsibilities, that, and we are responsible to surrender to them what he calls us to surrender. So let's go through each of those, right? Government, church, family, all right? For example, government, right? Some blessings that he can provide to us through governments uh, would be protection, right? Whether it's military, police, or just having laws, law and order, right? They're not the show, but just the actual law and order, right? Like there, there are blessings he can provide to us through that. But what does he call us to surrender to the government? Well, here he says, pay your taxes, honor your leaders, pray for your leaders. But no, we want the benefit, we want the blessings without the responsibility of surrendering anything, right? Or what about the institution of the local church? The local church, which, was, which by the way, is God's idea and is the main avenue by which the Great Commission is being carried out. Some blessings you receive from God through the local church are, are one would be teaching from God's Word, right? You receive teaching from God's Word. You receive community with fellow believers. You, re- you receive instruction in proper worship of God. You receive access to one another's spiritual gifts. That's just to name a few of the blessings that that God gives to us through the local church. But what does God say you are responsible to surrender to the local church? Well, for one, God, God calls you to give financially to the local church. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, a financial term, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The Bible also calls you to serve one another, to surrender your your service to one another. The Bible calls you to to come under authority of local elders and pastors, to be committed to seeing one another be built up in Christ. But again, we see many people wanting the blessings of the local church without recognizing their responsibility to surrender some things to the local church as well. The family is another institution that we receive God's grace through, right? The family in general, right? In general, the family unit, through the family unit, we experience love, we experience stability, we experience discipline, we experience uh, protection. 
But what does God say you are responsible to surrender to your family unit? God calls husbands to sacrificially lay down their life for their wife. God calls wives to come alongside the servant leadership of their husbands. God calls kids to honor their parents. And God calls parents to lovingly discipline their kids. But again, many families have experienced pain and brokenness when one or multiple individuals of the family have neglected their responsibility to the family. We want the benefits without the taxes. We want the blessings but neglect the responsibilities God has called us to. And what is the remedy for this, though? Maybe you're thinking, okay, great, yeah, I see the problem, but what is the remedy? Like, I see the problem that we love benefits and blessings, but we try to get out of the responsibility of surrendering anything. We do this with government, we do this with church, we do this with family, and we ultimately, we do this with God. And listen, church, we are unable in our own strength to surrender to God what is God's. People try, but we are unable in our own strength to surrender to God what is God's. And so the question is, how are we freed to obey what God is calling us to? Look back at verse uh, 17 in Mark, Mark 12, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The answer to the question, do we surrender taxes to Caesar, was answered by whose image is stamped on the denarius. Alyssa, do you mind pulling up the denarius again, right? So to answer the question, uh, do we surrender our taxes, it was answered by whose image is this? And so listen, if we are to have any chance of surrendering to God what is God's, we first have to understand what is God's. And if, and if we figured out what was Caesar's by asking whose image is this, then maybe we need to look at ourselves and ask whose image is this? Everyone, everyone, if you have a smartphone, everyone get out your cell phone, all right? This is a, this is a monumental day. I will never again encourage you to do this, okay? Uh, if, you can, if you know yourself, if you can stay off of uh, Facebook or anything else, get out your phone. I want you guys, I want us all to take a, a selfie of ourselves, okay? So if you have a phone that is, uh, that is capable of doing that, uh, go ahead and get your phone out, okay? Again, don't miss this opportunity. This is not going to happen again, all right? Uh, I'm impressed. Some of us know what a selfie is. That's good. All right. Photobombing happening, right? Okay. Everyone, go ahead. Take a selfie. All right. You got this. I'm, I, it's, it's okay. I'm giving you permission. All right. I'm not trying to catch you or trick you in any, into anything, okay? Everyone, take a selfie. And after you've taken a selfie, pull that picture up on your phone and look at a picture of yourself which I know most of us don't like to do. Some of you really like to do it, but some, most of us don't like to do it, all right? Make sure there's no uh, Snapchat filters, no, uh, no like kitten ears or anything, just like a normal picture of yourself, all right? A normal, real-life picture, non-edited, no filters. 
And I want you right now to look at that on your phone. All right, everyone look at this on your phone. Look at that picture, and I want you to hear these words from the book of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And you can keep looking at your picture for just a little while longer if you still have it up, okay? The denarius belonged to Caesar because it had his image stamped on it. But whose image has been stamped on you? Like, whose image is this? You, you see, when a ruler conquered a land, what they would often do is they would put their image on currency, on money, so that the people knew who ruled the land. All they had to do was look at their money and say, oh yeah, I know who's ruling this land. And in the same way, when God created the world, when he created all the animals and plants and, and everything in the world, he stamped his image on men and women to be his representative rule in creation as we build societies and as we take care of his world. This is what theologians have called the imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God. So go ahead and you can put your phones away. Unless you're going to post them, then, you know, hashtag imago Dei, hashtag Franklin City Church. I don't want to tell you how to do your social media, but I would probably do that. All right. Otherwise, put your phones away, and, and, uh, and, and we won't do that very often. <laughs> the Imago Dei, the image of God. Bruce uh, Ware, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, this is what he has to say about the Imago Dei. He says, being created in the image of God means that God made human beings, both male and female, to be created in finite representations of God's own nature. That in relationship with him and each other, they might be his representatives in carrying out the responsibilities he has given them. In this sense, we are images of God in order to image God and his purposes in the ordering of our lives and carrying out of our God-given responsibilities. For one, being created in the image of God means that every man, woman, and child has dignity and has significance. Maybe take a sticky note and on the mirror in the morning, write Imago Day, just to remind you, right, uh, of whose image has been stamped on you, of whose uh, re representative you are in the world. And, and you have dignity and significance because of whose image you have been created in. Every human being has far greater worth than any other animal or plant or any other created thing because we were created in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, uh, we can know God. We can enjoy God. We can commune with God in a way that no other created thing can. But with the blessings and benefits of being created in the image of God also comes a great responsibility to surrender to God what is God's. 
Because being created in the image of God, yes, there are big blessings and benefits that come with that, but that also means that we are His. We are His. Psalm 100, verse 3. It says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so for Jesus to say, give to God the things that are God's, we must first look in the mirror and ask, whose image is this? Our great God has stamped his image on us. And because of this, he has the right to all of our lives. All we have and all we are are to be given to God. We are God's. You see, many people try to, and and as I said that phrase, we are God's, not we are God's like divine, right? I'm saying we are God's people. We are his. That's what I'm saying. Okay. You see, many people try to flatter God and never actually follow God. Many people like to play church, and they like to come and give God some compliments, right? We usually sing four or five songs. We'll come in, we'll give God four or five compliments, uh, and then we never then surrender or follow after him. We like to flatter God and say some nice things about God, but we actually never have any intention of surrendering to God the things that are God's. We never have any intention of surrendering to God all that we are and all that we have. And listen, church, until you surrender all you have and all you are to God, you will be enslaved in trying to get the blessings and benefits from God's common graces and neglecting the joy and freedom that exist in surrendering to God the things that are God's. And listen, like I said before, in our own strength, we are unable to surrender to God what is God's. It's not until you behold the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ that you can really give to God what is God's. You see, we've been talking this morning a lot about benefits and responsibilities, right? We've been talking about blessings and taxes. We've been talking about receiving things and surrendering things. But you see, Jesus Christ showed his grace to us in that although he in eternity past eternally existed with the Father and Spirit, he set aside his blessedness. Jesus set aside his benefits in order that he might come to earth and and pay the debt that our taxes owed. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And we're talking about something way more meaningful than just money in that verse, okay? All right? We're talking about something way more deeper and more valuable than money. We see that Jesus set aside his blessedness. He set aside his benefits to come take upon himself our responsibility for our sin. 
And he died a sacrificial death on a cross in our place and and that we might be freed from the penalty and the power of sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And he's now sent to us his spirit in order to make our dead hearts alive, to give us faith, to enjoy and receive his blessings, and to give us the power to embrace the surrender that he calls us to. It's only by the power of the Spirit that you're really going to be able to receive the grace of God and surrender to God what is God's. But what kind of God is this? That though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. That we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the King. What kind of love and grace and mercy and generosity is this? We are a people who want the benefits with none of the responsibilities, and yet our God is a God who set aside his benefits to take upon himself our responsibilities so that now by his spirit we are freed to, through faith, enjoy the benefits he provides and empowered to surrender to God what is God's. All we have and all we are must be surrendered to God. And this morning, I think we all need to do a little bit of a heart check. Because I believe that many of us have parts of us that we have not surrendered to the Lord. Sure, maybe we can come in on a Sunday and give him some flattering words, right? We can say some nice things about him. We can kind of even put around it, wrap it up with some religious jargon and things like that. But you know that Monday through Saturday, there are things that you have not surrendered to him. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your hopes and dreams for the future. Maybe it's a certain relationship that you have not surrendered over to him. Maybe it's your energy. Maybe it's your pleasures. Maybe it's a secret sin that no one else knows about. We've taken, we've taken from the government, we've taken from church, we've taken from family, we've taken from God, and we've not given to God what is God's. So let's pray, and let's ask the Lord and His Spirit to help us and empower us. Pray with me.